Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Coming to you here late in August, and we just recently attended Game Fair, which is this sort of trade show or product uh, display event at the Armstrong Ranch, uh, just north of the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. And it's billed as one of the largest outdoor hunting and fishing events around. And I think they say they have anywhere between 50 and 100,000 people come to this event. So it's a great opportunity to see people that you might not see at other times of the year uh, that are within the outdoor space. Maybe they're a manufacturer or they have a have some type of platform or media. And uh, it's fun to catch up with old friends. So today's episode is my conversation with uh, five people who I caught up with out at Game Fair. And that includes Lee Chos uh, from Boss Shot Shells. And if you've gone through the Hunting Camp Live course, you've met Lee before, where he's talked about the anatomy of a shotgun shell. And if you're not familiar with Boss Shot Shells, you might want to check them out. These guys make a great product of a non-toxic shot shell. I also caught up with Jason Kelvey, who is uh, a coach and does educational support for the USA Clay Target League. This is uh, another organization based out of Minnesota that puts together events and, and leagues across the nation for high school and college age students who want to shoot trap. And uh, they, they've gone through some challenges with the pandemic, but have come out strong and are really getting a lot of people excited about and interested in trap shooting. So catch up with Jason and then also uh, saw Mercedes Akinsey. Uh, Mercedes works for Minnesota Deer Hunters which is a, a deer hunting organization uh, based in the state that has tens of thousands of members and has a long history. And so it's good to catch up with Mercedes. Uh, Andy Schumacher of the Minnesota Trappers Association. You know, this one is, is the first time we've had a conversation about trapping. Uh, you know, it's, it's not the core of what we do at Modern Carnivore is, is really talk about trapping, but I think it's something important and it's a really great tradition, especially in places like Minnesota where we have trappers who do a lot of good, um, you know, help in terms of managing uh, game uh, in nuisance situations. And of course, uh, those who are fur bearer, uh, you know, doing it with, with fur bearing animals for that marketplace. Uh, but also uh, something that's become popular in, in recent uh, years is to talk about uh, eating uh, animals like beaver. And so Andy and I chat a little bit about that. So we also had Corey Leffler from DRC Call Company stop by and uh, Modern Carnivore mentor Greg Cavalli also was in the area. So we had him join us for a conversation and we talked about 
duck calls and goose calls. I was not familiar with this company beforehand, and um, they make some really great quality goose and duck calls from the sounds of it. And we just had a fun conversation talking with Corey about bird hunting. And then finally, we also have Kang Yang on the podcast today. And you'll probably start hearing more from Kang in that we're going to do some things together. Kang is a young hunter uh, here based out of the Twin Cities. Uh, He's part of the Hmong community. And he has a brand called Minnesota Hunter and does a lot of social media, including TikTok, which is something that uh, I myself do not really get involved with, but he does a lot of fun educational videos around hunting. And so we caught up with Kang as he was over helping the Delta Waterfall booth uh, get ready for their big banquet and and sign up members. So hope you enjoyed today's conversation, a little different from a typical one with all the different people, but I think uh, all all great individuals. And and I think you'll, you'll have fun listening in to the chats we had at Game Fair. Okay, we have got Mr. Lee Chos here with us in the BHA tent on the Modern Carnivore Podcast. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Nice to see you again. Good to see you, yeah. man. Doesn't you... it feel good to be out? It does. It does. It feels so good. And we got a perfect weather day. Oh, man. This is a crazy event, how big it is. It's, you know, well, Tom, you know, my good friend Tom Dockin and I, we talk about, like, consumer events, especially in the dog game bird hunting world waterfall i still think it's the best consumer event in the country it's pretty dang good it's it is good. absolutely yep. i mean it's uh chuck it, and lorelei have done an unbelievably good job yeah out here i think it's been doing it since 82 something like that for sure in the yep yeah yeah made her yeah. on there so uh you we'll talk we'll talk about why you're here today uh, and and that's that's one of the big things we want to talk about uh, but people know your work, uh, even though they don't know it. They've seen it. I bet you everybody listening to this podcast has seen your work uh, in the photography world. So I've, I've never even asked you, like, how do you describe that? Like, if somebody says, what do you do and what what, what have I seen or, or where, what, 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 you know, how well, do you answer that question? Well, first of all, I'd say I'm a, <clears throat> like, if somebody hung a title on me, I'd be a commercial advertising and editorial shooter. That's probably how you would classify me. Um, I have a little maybe different skill set due to my design talent and being able to draw and paint. And so if, like like Mark was saying, you know, people probably, it's hard to talk about it because it's embarrassing, you know, but they, you know how I make those books, those portfolio books out of every year's work? Yeah. When I meet new people, like, Right, and they look through it. They go, "Oh, oh, yeah, I remember that." And then the next page, "Oh, yeah, I remember that too." Well, you're the guy that did this. Well, the truth is, I mean, yeah, but I had an awful lot of great help along the way, right? So it's not just me that did it. But yes, they. If you've been around the waterfall hunting, fishing, upland bird hunting game for any of the last thirty years, yeah, you've seen the work. Yeah. I've seen magazine covers, brands like Benelli, yeah, Orvis, yeah. or uh, Filson, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Sport Dog. I mean, some of my favorite work I've ever done, I've done for Sport Dog, and those people are right down here, and they're about as good a people as you can get to work for. Um, Tom Dockin cut my teeth, you know, back in the day working with Doc and helping him market that deadfall trainer off, and then 
things really started to get wild when I got Benelli. Yeah. And then Under Armour, and then I shot Yukonuba and Purina forever, and then then I really got into the gun culture, the yeah. gun game, right? Benelli and Kimber and Springfield, and just I mean on and on, and then the optics game, and then we just I don't know, man. It was it's been a great run, you know. <laughs> Really has. So you got a big project now that you've been doing for a few years, and it's pretty exciting. And uh, you, we could talk for hours on this, I know. And we're gonna do a, we're gonna do a, a short one today, and then I think people are gonna ask for more, and we'll have you back on at some at some point. Yeah, but we'll do it anywhere with you guys. So, boss shot shells, P- listeners might have shot it. They may have heard of the brand. Maybe they haven't. What defines Boss Shot Shells? Well, I mean, we're a small group of dudes, sportsmen, hunters, duck hunters, bird hunters, fishermen that have major beliefs in habitat and conservation first. So we're direct to consumer, which helps us make the very best shell for the sportsman at the very best price. We just had some guys today at the booth. Well, first of all, I mean, how nice is it to be back here at Game Fair, right, and being outside and seeing your buddies again? But this morning, a bunch of people, they come up and they go, do you have a show special? And I'm like, well, I mean, no, we don't. And they're like, she was like, why don't you, you know? And I said, well, first of all, we're we're direct-to-consumer, and we run on really tight margins and, like, efficiencies, right? where we can offer the very best shell, and I'm confident in saying that. I mean, I have no problem saying it. It's the best shell out there, especially when you factor in price, and quite honestly, I don't even think it's close. Well, if we couldn't do that, we couldn't, do, we couldn't offer that. So if somebody asked us who we are, that's who we are. We're a shot shell company. We make copper-plated bismuth. We own the plating on all high-density metal. We offer our consumers exceptional quality shells at the very best price with really good customer service and all of our focus and attention is on habitat and conservation and supporting other groups and projects. And if if this can be our voice, this is gonna be our voice platform for it. And you guys have done a great job of supporting conservation groups uh, like the booth we're in here today, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and, yep. and, and others, and, yep. and uh, thank you for that. Oh, we appreciate it. Um, so maybe just to, to give a little one-on-one on bismuth and non-toxic mm-hmm. versus the alternatives. Um, why, why non-toxic? Why unleaded? Well... You know, <laughs> that's rhetorical. You know that. <laughs> you know my answer here. Okay, so like I guess you'd have to say like even before boss. I mean, I'm way into ducks, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody exactly. that knows everybody that knows Joe knows that's his it's his bag, right? I love him. Love everything there is about him, including protecting him. So. In our country, we average between 3.4 and 3.7 million lost birds due to crippling, right? So that's the key. They're lost birds, but it's due to crippling. So you go, why? 
well. I mean, quite honestly, I mean, I don't mind saying the steel's just not a very effective at killing, right? Can you kill them? Sure. But there's circumstances that have to happen, right? Like distance and all kinds of stuff. But the fact is it just doesn't have the density. It just doesn't have the weight. So I'm an old school lead shooter. My favorite shell back in the day was a Winchester double X copper plated number five, six even. It's absolutely a wrecking ball. We, that's our goal. We're out to make a shell that performs like that. Ours is copper plated. They're tumbled. It's a beautiful mixture. Alloyed bismuth, tumbled perfect. Plate, copper plated, tumbled again. Best quality powders, best quality wads, best quality everything. It's the best shell we can make for the mine, right? My goal is to... I mean, would I love to eliminate crippling? Well, yeah, wouldn't we all? It'd be great. But, I mean, that's not going to happen. But can we cut it in half? And then can we cut it in half again? Damn right we can. Right? Here's how. If you shoot a better shell, and I'm going to tell everybody right now, right? I mean, you could say, well, yeah, he's saying that because he owns Boss Shot Shell. Dude, I don't care what shell you shoot. Right? We're all in this for the same thing. Right? Just shoot a better one. Get good at patterning. So another boss narrative would be put it on paper, right? Take your choke, take the shell you're going to shoot, back out to 30 yards, shoot it like a 48-inch piece of paper or cardboard, go up, look at it, draw a 30-inch circle around the densest part of the pattern, do the math, and go call me up. DM me at, on Instagram. I'm the, I'm the guy you're going to be talking to if you DM me. Say, hey, dude, I shot a pattern. I got it back, and it's only 68%, and I think it could be more. I go, okay, what do you got for a gun? What are you shooting for a choke? Let's get this thing dialed in. I'm going to help you get that up into the 70s, 75, 80. If you do that, and you start shooting finished birds mostly, right? Or, or if it's not a finished bird, it's at least something that you know within your own limitations is a, is a good killing shot, Right? take it and if we so we have this another narrative called know the shot right and my what i mean by know is know yourself off a bad shot or a crippling shot don't get caught up in the in the madness just take a good shot kill it do it if they're getting away let them get away right let them get away so i and i believe this i mean with a hundred percent i believe this no this know the shot campaign initiative you take 3.4 to 3.7 million, let's say between the, us as a group, we cut that number in half. We each did our part, created a little buzz socially about it. Hey, dude, I went out today. I didn't have a cripple today. And awesome. How many shells did you shoot? Seven. Cool, dude. Right? So when somebody says, your shell's too expensive, uh, you know, probably shot five ducks in eight shells. So those three shells at maybe $20 more. Okay, so you're telling me 60 cents made the difference today? <laughs> I don't think so. Right? Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, if, you know, so everything we do, all of our initiatives, everything we try to make, all leads back to con- conserving or conservation. Right? Absolutely. And we love spending money with the conservation groups. We love it. And that's where I think not only it's it's the essence of your product, but it's the essence of the way you guys do business. It's the people. It, exactly. It's the people. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the questions we're asking people today is, uh, 
why do you hunt? What boy, got you oh into it? <laughs> what keeps you in it? Well, my dad and mom, we grew, we grew up sportsmen, right? Like almost born to it, right? Mom and dad owned a small fishing resort in northern Minnesota. Dad was um, a traveling sportsman before it was a thing. Fly fish, upland hunt. He did hunt big game, even though, but his passion was ducks. And I don't know, by the time I was maybe a 12 or 12 or 13 year old, I think I'd hunted ducks in 13 states and four provinces by the time I was a 13 year old. So I really, truthfully, I really never knew any better. Right. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, and then the things that I saw, right, the things that I saw as a kid, I mean, no, I mean, just f- formed, formed my life and what I wanted to do, you know? Yeah. What and, keeps you in hunting now? Oh, boy. The ducks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You are a duck guy through and yeah. through. I mean, I think about the people, the people, family, um, dogs. But I got to say, man, if it wasn't for the duck, I wouldn't yeah. be doing any of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. No, I'm here for the ducks. <laughs> well, no doubt about it. Appreciate you stopping by Any, and chatting with us today. Anything for you guys. Hey, man, and uh, we'll, we'll stop back over. Stop by the farm. Yeah, yeah, we'll, I will. I don't know. We'll do that goose pastrami thing yeah. or something. <laughs> Sounds good. Last time I was down, you had, you had the barn full of full of all that stuff. You were getting ready to do a shoot right after, I think. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah, anytime. Absolutely. Anytime you guys are welcome in okay. my place. All right? Thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we're now joined by Jason. Jason Kelvin, correct. And Jason, you are with the USA Clay Target League. Correct, yep. Used to be the high school league, but you've since expanded, and that's, I believe, your part of your responsibility, right? It is. You know, that's been one of the things with the whole COVID challenge is now everybody wears many hats, you know, and so... We found an opportunity to take the high school league and bring it to the next level and start a college league. So it's been very exciting to bring uh, colleges from all across the country into the league now. So focus of your organization is is clay target shooting. Talk a little bit about that. Like uh, how, do you, how do you start a program? Um, why is it successful in a, in a school, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, again, we are clay target. We're not uh, rifle, pistol, anything like that. So anything around clay target. So we're talking trap shooting, skeet shooting. Uh, we've recently, this past fall, added sporting clays and five stands. So um, the whole premise behind our program is just what the motto of the league is, which is safety, fun, and marksmanship in that order. Uh, we really pride ourselves on that because it is about safety first. We care that every student and volunteer has fun, and then we get into the competition competition side of things and so we are we're a virtual clay target league we try and be as flexible as we can so we allow um you know programs to shoot at their home range things like that but back to your point on how to start a team these days um early on we certainly had our challenges because anytime you mention the words gun and school in the same sentence you can about imagine the reaction we got from people um but you know through the diligent work of jim sable john nelson and a few others uh, we've got a program now where 
pretty much anybody can bring uh, the material to the school and let them know that, you know, this is an educational-based program. Um, it, nine out of ten times doesn't cost the school anything, so there's no investment on their end. It's not another budget line item for them. And the recreational boys and girls competing together grades 7 through 12 has just been an absolute hit at, at a recreational level for another option. So 7 through 12 is what I was, that was going to be my next question. The league offers 6 through 12. Um, the current school I'm with at Lakeville South offers 7 through 12. Everything's different, but the league itself is 6 through 12. So right around that age where you're getting your firearm safety, from there you can join the league. So you're, uh, the organization's a nonprofit. Correct. It's your full-time job, right? It is my full-time job. I was lucky enough to come on full-time in 2016. But, yes, we are now a uh, 501c3 operating in 34 states across the country. 34 states. How about how many, uh, how many states do you have uh, college programs in? Uh, right now we have two main college programs. So we have one centrally based here out of Minnesota called the MCAC, the Minnesota College Athletic Conference. That's comprised of about 12 two-year tech schools, things like Hibbing, Vermilion, um, Southwest Tech, stuff like that. They'll compete here this fall. And then we also have our national conference, and our national conference is just um, any college, two-year or four-year, competing in our virtual league in the fall. Do you see uh, Do you see a fair amount of... Uh people who were in the high school leagues transitioning to to the college leagues or are they pretty separate you know so we had two main drivers to even start a college league one certainly being the high school students asking what they could do at the next level so as they started inquiring to us does this school have um, a team does this school have a scholarship program things like that we found out that there just really wasn't, you know, I mean, there was highly competitive teams out east, down south, but there wasn't a whole lot across the country. So student, uh, it was student driven for sure. Um, number two was the colleges coming to us, seeing all the results and the participation we had at the high school level saying, hey, we need another recruitment tool. Um, you know, everybody's going after hockey, basketball, gymnastics, you name it. But trap shooting was bringing in another another group of people to help recruitment efforts. So between the colleges and the students leaving our high school program, it was a perfect fit. So what, what do you see with, with students coming into a program that have little to no background with firearms? Like what's the draw and, and what are the... What are the concerns they, they have, either either the students or their parents, maybe? You know, safety is always the number one concern, I would say, and we address that right away uh, through our coach education programs. We've got a number of different certifications. We've got a number of virtual and online options for coaches and then some in-person stuff as necessary. But to address any concerns right away, we really try and focus on educating our coaches and addressing safety as number one. Um, back to your point on interest. Um, I think the interest is through the roof, mainly because of the way it's structured. A, it's flexibility. You don't have to put in five days of practice. You don't have to do two days. And the cost is very, very affordable, especially once you have the firearm, which are a lot of them are transitioned through family. But you're not in for all this equipment. You're not in for all this travel uh, and things like that. So, it's again, it's a very flexible uh, recreational activity that people seem to really gravitate towards. And it's a, and it's a lifelong sport. You know, yeah, absolutely. Non-contact, yeah. all those kind of things, Title IX. So you told me earlier, you said um, college students are oftentimes looking for something novel, different 
they've maybe played football, basketball, hockey through all all of their younger years in school. Through high school, they want to do something new. And so, yeah, talk a little bit about that. I mean, how how clay shooting comes into that. You know, I'll just I'll start with my own experience. You know, so I graduated from Burnsville High School in Minnesota, and I couldn't get up to UMD University of Minnesota Duluth fast enough. Uh, a big driver for me wanting to go up there was fishing on the lake, was grouse hunting uh, on the trails up in Isabella, and whatever I could. If I could get out of school and be within thirty minutes of grouse hunting, outstanding. <laughs> you know, and I can fish in the spring when the steelhead Can't do are that running. In Burnsville, right? You know, so uh, to that point, I mean, traditional sports through high school and stuff are great and I know kids put a lot of time and effort in but there's that burnout factor when they get to the college level they like the recreational the stress-free stuff um, and in clay shooting becomes that for them they can start a team on their own it can be you know um, something as a club sport as long as it's approved by the school but it can be five people just picking whatever time they want to go and go do something low pressure low stress a lot of fun would you call it golfing with a gun or golfing with a gun? That's been, you know, sporting <laughs> clays and things have been referred to as golf with a gun. Yeah. So, um, is there, is there an overlap with, uh, with hunting with the shooting or do you think they're, are they pretty separate? Um, I would say at the high school, you know, we do a survey every year at the high school level. I want to say we see somewhere around 50% um, crossover between student athletes that hunt. I should say that buy a hunting license and that compete in the league. So, you know, high school level 50, 50, um, depending on the location and the college level, certainly upper Midwest, uh, out East, things like that, that carries another level of hunting with it. I'm not so sure about Southern States, um, you know, what, how they tie it together, but it, it definitely is hand in hand when you're talking Minnesota, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, uh, even New York, things like that. Mm-hmm. It definitely is part of it. So you are you're an upland bird hunter, right? Correct. And you don't big game hunt. Uh you don't small game hunt outside of the birds. That's the main focus here. A lot of fishing. Yep. Uh, we love chasing pheasants. My personal favorite thing is is hunting grouse. I love getting up in northern Minnesota, uh, taking my lab, and, and chasing grouse. Yeah, um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, pheasants. Like, uh, I've got a six-month-old lab now, and we can't wait to get out this fall. So what is the reason you love to hunt what's the draw you talk about you couldn't get up quick enough up to the north shore of minnesota to be able to be in a half hour of of shooting grouse what is the draw for you my initial draw was just you know the family time that we grew up doing you know hunting and it's just it's just always felt like too short of a season (laughs) you know i feel like i have my kids of my own now and i feel like whatever sport they're in it just drains on forever and ever I never feel like hunting or fishing is a long enough season. So when I get to go to an area where I can hunt or fish more, um, it's exciting. And it's really exciting to to get my dog out there. And I'll be excited to get my sons and my daughter started this fall. Um, But the draw has always been relaxing, uh, you know, a lot of fun, problem solving, and just the, the thrill of the hunt. You know, is really what it boils down to. Absolutely. So, do you have any favorite recipes with grouse? Uh, what uh, What's your typical way to prepare the bird? You know, I'm probably boring when it comes to recipes. Um, you know, grouse, white meat, great stuff. Uh, wild rice soups. You know, pan fried things like that. I'm sure I don't do it justice, but I do love eating it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Love eating it, yeah. and I'm always searching 
TV shows and, and YouTubes and whatever for different recipes. You got a trip planned with your lab for this fall? You got any specifics? She's going to school next week first for a couple week puppy school. I don't have the trip planned yet, but that's another thing I love about grouse hunting. You can get in the truck on a Friday or whatever and head up north and find trails. It's really, in my opinion, not an overly cumbersome trip you have to plan to chase grouse. Yeah, I agree. Yep. You know, yep. you can get up there and get on birds pretty quick, I think. Minnesota, we're lucky. Yeah. Well, Jason, thanks for stopping by and uh, keep up the great work with the league and both the high schools and the colleges across the U.S. If people are interested in starting the league or want just more info, where should they go? Uh, USAClayTarget.com USAClayTarget.com Best place to look. Yeah, you'll find everything you need there, and we'll definitely put you in touch with somebody right away if there's interest. So, Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, and enjoy the rest of uh, Game Fair. Thanks for having me. Okay, we now have uh, Mercedes Akinzi. Yes. You said it I right. Did, I said you it said right. It right. That's the first time I think I've ever said it right to you. It's actually, so my dad's Nigerian. It's actually pronounced Akinsheye. Okay. But I say Akinzi because it's easier for me and everybody else to say. So <laughs> we all just go Minnesota. by Akinzi in Minnesota. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> to the Nigerian community, it might be a little bit different, but to everybody else, it's just Akinzi. So. Uh, so... Thanks for stopping by. You are here today. You're doing a lot of things. You're busy. You're Sometimes. Here, you're here. So your your day job is what? So I work for the Minnesota Deer Hunters Association as a development director. And um, yeah, it's, it, it takes up a lot of my time, but it's a really fun job. I get to do a lot of different things and, and every day is different. Yeah, absolutely. So Minnesota Deer Hunters is focused on what and what kind of, how big is membership? Do you know offhand? We have about 60 chapters and we're, we're growing. We're actually looking at expanding um, to two new chapters, but uh, we have 60 different chapters and then about 20,000 members okay. statewide. It's, it's only the state of Minnesota. Um, Which is amazing to have 20,000 members hunting organization in one state. Absolutely. I think a lot of it though comes from the fact that we are all about advocacy. Um, we do a lot of stuff when it comes to legislation, a lot of um, different activities when it comes to habitat work. And then also um, we do a lot when it comes to youth and, and education in general. So I think that people are drawn to that. And then when you couple that with the fact that all of our money stays in Minnesota, I think that people are more apt to give and more apt to donate their time because they know that they can see the actual results of their work and, and see their dollars at work and and drive to the land that maybe we've helped acquire with the work with the help of the DNR or um, you know uh, just you know see the trap trap team that they've maybe sponsored see them succeed right absolutely so tell us a little bit about you and your hunting journey. So when did you start hunting? Well, I'm an adult onset hunter, which I think that some at one point someone had mentioned that kind of sounds like a disease or something. Right, but right. Um, I started hunting at 18. So my outdoor experience up until that point was non-existent. Um, I grew up in a very sterile environment. Um, no one in my family hunts. No one in my family fishes. My dad is from Nigeria, and he grew up in the city with drivers and housemaids and all sorts of stuff. He grew up very wealthy, so he really wasn't connected to the land in any capacity. And my mom grew up in the suburbs of Iowa and, again, was not really connected to nature in any way. So I grew up in apartments and townhouses with manicured lawns and sidewalks and everything, and um, 
I'd always watched Minnesota Bound. So I give, I give Ron Shera some credit on this one. And I always read the back page of the Star Tribune on Sundays when they had their outdoor articles. And why? Why did you, like, what, how old, like, you were reading that at what age? Oh, golly. And Probably watch. about eight. I know that my mom got the Star Tribune as early as that. And eight, nine, ten years old. It, it just, it looked like a really cool adventure. Okay. It was something that I'd never done before. I love animals. But I grew up afraid of the elements. I mean, snow and sand were things that even as an infant, I did not like. <laughs> so, so the fact that I've made it this far, it, you know, anything is possible, like Kevin Garnett, you know? So, <laughs> so you're 18, and you decide, like, so obviously you'd been, you'd been consuming some media storytelling about hunting, learning more about it. What was sort of the tipping point for you to say, you know what, I'm actually going to try it? I honestly, you know, I I should probably backpedal on this. My journey kind of started at 16. So I had gone to an environmental high school, which is really funny considering the fact that I hated the elements. But um, (laughs) I was introduced to some of that there. And I met a friend who said, hey, you want to skip school and go fishing? And I'm like, what the heck? All right, fine, we'll do it. So we we skipped school, you know, hopped in a canoe. I've never canoed in my life at that point. And I was really scared. But... um, he caught some turtles and caught some fish and stuff, and I got to kind of, you know, look at them and see what they were like, and that was kind of cool. So um, fast forward to 18, I have now had a little bit of fishing experience under my belt, and I decided that maybe I should try hunting. So I signed up for a gun safety class with a bunch of 11- and 12-year-olds. I was the only adult, <laughs> <Yeah>, right? <laughs> aside from parents chaperoning, and decided to take the gun safety class. And I told that same friend who took me fishing, and he goes, do you want to join our deer camp? It's me, my dad, and my brother. So I said, not knowing what I was getting into, I said, okay, fine, and That's hopped a in rarity. an RV. That's a rarity. I mean, for because the, the there are few institutions that are more insulated than uh, deer camps. I know. <laughs> I felt really special. <laughs> Absolutely. I had no idea what the heck I was doing, though. Absolutely no idea. So you said yes? Of course. Of, I, of course. course I said yes. I'm one of those people. I, I don't like to turn down um, new experiences unless and there's there's some lines, obviously. Um, frogs and snakes and toads are gross. <laughs> but uh, but I still, I'll, I'll still entertain the idea of some of that stuff. But um, yeah, it was a really special big deal, and I had no idea at the time how big of a deal it was to be invited to somebody's hunting camp. But I also was very ill-prepared. <laughs> I mean, I wore sweatpants, I had gone to Gander Mountain, and I looked at the cost of hunting clothes, and I said, there's no way I'm paying $200 for a pair of pants. Now, mind you, this is November, Yeah. <laughs> so I probably should have paid the $200. Right, right. So I layered up sweatpants, and I saw these camo men's extra tall don't ask me why I bought them but extra tall rain pants and I decided I'm just going to put those over the sweatpants and I'll be fine and I'll just wear my regular boots and my regular <laughs> stuff and I'll just put some camel layers on the outside of it and it, it worked yeah yeah but you got uh, by. Yeah. yeah it was definitely drying off the clothes at the end of the night and yeah. everything because occasionally the sweat- sweatpants yes oh my gosh. it was the worst wow. yeah. and we got a huge snowstorm that oh, year too right. so of course <laughs> so did you see anything I did see some, um, and I remember sitting there, and it was the second day of hunting, and they had let me go off on my own, which is probably a no-no with first-time hunters, but uh, they let me go off on my own, and I remember seeing this doe, and obviously I had not shot many times before, so I probably shouldn't have even taken a shot, and I'm glad that I didn't now, but I saw this doe, and I raised my gun, and my fingers, you know, just hovering above the trigger guard, and... 
as soon as I thought that I might be ready to shoot, out comes a yearling, like a fawn. And I'm like, never mind. <laughs> so, but I did see deer. I did see okay. deer and I had, uh, I believe it's a pine marten okay. run, run across yeah. my feet and yeah. all sorts of fun, exciting stuff. I was scared by a grouse on this trip as well. I had no idea that there were grouse even in Cannon Falls, but there was one. I can confirm that now. <laughs> That's pretty far south. Yeah. I know, right? So, uh, have you gotten a deer? I have not. Okay. Um, I'll be honest. I've... I, after that experience, I decided to pick up archery hunting okay. for deer and had some opportunities at shots and it just never seemed to line up right. And not soon after I picked up uh, pheasant hunting and grouse hunting and waterfall. And I, I really, I spend the majority of my time doing those types of hunting now. So you have a, you have a pretty good crew of other women that that you go bird hunting with right the best crew the best crew <laughs> they are yes <laughs> absolutely so what are your plans for this fall do you have any absolutely okay. so uh, the, the 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 big event for this year of course we'll go hunting multiple times but the big event for this year is our annual grousemas slash woodcock stock event. And that is what we call our grouse opener. It initially was grousemas and now the two seasons are combined <laughs> date. So um, it's now grousemas slash woodcock stock. And we are actually going to Michigan for almost a week and we're staying in a cabin and wow. we're going to do a lot of hunting. Fun. Super oh excited. Gosh. Super excited. That is great. Are you going to take Julia's VW? Of course. Of course. Of course. Oh, that's the, great. the VW Westphalia has to go with us. <laughs> it would not be a hunting trip without that thing. It's it's not the fastest vehicle, but it is incredibly handy to have. <laughs> it's, it's a very cool vehicle. So what is it that keeps you highly engaged in hunting? Because it is your professional life. It's your personal life. Um, what what is what is the essence of it? And I know there's there could be so many things, but if you had to boil it down, what is it that keeps you keeps you hunting? In one word, camaraderie. I absolutely love the hunting community. Um, it's golly, it's really tough to explain it, but I I love this community so much. Um, I've been met. I, obviously, I I don't fit the normal stereotype of what a hunter or what people think that a hunter looks like. But I have been welcomed by so many different people. I have never laughed so much in my life. I have witnessed so many different things when it comes to wildlife and, and their behaviors that I would have never experienced or been aware of otherwise. And yeah, camaraderie is what it really boils down to, though, is, is the fact that I've met some of the most amazing people in my life, and they all just so happen to be hunters. <laughs> <laughs> and not only, I think what you're saying is not only your small group community of other women that you go hunting with, but the broader hunting community of people you work with across the state, and et cetera, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's funny, too, because I think that hunters are pigeonholed into one, you know, one idea of what we are and what we stand for and what we do. But um, much more important than the actual harvest of an animal, I think that it's more so the the conservation aspect of it. And that's another thing that really draws me in is is how much of an impact hunters have made when it comes to public land acquisitions and maintenance and when it comes to, you know, selective harvest of timber and, you know, just all sorts of different stuff. It's 
how could you not? How could you not like hunters and hunting, you know? Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Well, uh, as always, Mercedes, this has been fun. Uh, we're going to have you on again at some okay. point. And, Love to. Uh, and we'll do some more. But uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners, this is Mark, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland Bird Hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash upland birds to get more information. Now there's a limited class size, so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot. Now back to the podcast. Okay, our next guest here at Game Fair is... Andy uh, with Minnesota Trappers uh, Association, and so uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. Very Abs- happy to be here. Absolutely. So, Andy, what what brought you to to Game Fair? Maybe share with us a little bit about uh, the organization you're here representing now, and what your role is. Sure. I'm I'm a member of the Minnesota Trappers Association. Uh, the state of Minnesota has uh, eight different districts for our Trappers Association. And the metro area is District 6, and I'm currently the director of uh, the District 6 uh, for the Trappers Association. And uh, what we do is we serve trappers in the state of Minnesota. We're very involved in youth education. A lot of people don't know it, but if you want to buy a trapping license and you've never trapped before in Minnesota, you're born after July, uh, December 31st, 1989, you must attend, you must complete trappers education before you can buy a trapping license. And uh, I'm one of the uh, instructors for that. So we, uh, we do have online course for the classroom part of it, but all participants must successfully complete a field day. And that involves a whole bunch of different topics that we try to cram in in, in six to eight hours. So I enjoy teaching that. So do you, uh, with a focus on that education and youth and such, um, what have you seen in... I guess you, you've been trapping a while. You told me you, you've been trapping 50, 51 years. This will be my 51st year of being involved in trapping. Yep. That's great. So what have you seen as far as changes in trapping over that time and participation? Is is it is it a lot less than it used to be? Or Yeah, the, our numbers are down, and uh, I think... There's a couple factors for that. One of the one of the factors is certainly uh, financial. Trappers like to get a reward. It's not the sole purpose of trapping, but we do like to get a a, a reward. And when fur prices are depressed, um, there's less people that that go out for it. Um, you know, we we talk about certain years as being the fur boom years. The the late 70s, early 80s was kind of the modern fur boom area where. You know, people could go out and trap in the fall and they could make enough money to buy a brand new pickup truck and pay for it in cash. So uh, those days are certainly gone. Uh, they may return again because uh, trapping goes through peaks and valleys all the time in fur prices. But uh, uh, right now we're in a low low period of fur prices, but we still have a lot of uh, a lot of people interested, a lot of diehards that do it every year regardless of, of fur prices. And I, I fall into that group. So so given that sort of depressed evaluation, I'm presuming there 
are not many, if any, people who that's their that is their primary vocation is is just trapping where they're paying the bills. There, there's there's some that still do, but they're they're definitely uh, lower than it was you know many years ago, 30, 40 years ago. Sure, uh, a lot of people have switched into that. Uh, uh, what you call ADC or animal damage control. Gotcha. Um, there's guys working for the, you know, highway departments, public works, uh, you know, just raccoons, go, any, anything from raccoons and skunks to moles and pocket gophers even. So there, there's a lot of opportunity for trapping still and, and serving the public by uh, helping them with your the skills you develop and the knowledge you develop over years of trapping. So what what originally drew you to trap? You know, trapping, it, it, to be honest, it's not something we talk about a whole lot here on, 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 on Modern Carnivore. Uh, and it's something I've always been curious about. I've had, I've had family members who've trapped. I myself have never been out uh, trapping. But, like, what, what drew you to it? Well, a lot of people get into it because of a family member, relative, something like that. But that wasn't the case with me. I grew up in White Bear Lake in the suburbs. Uh, my parents were city people. I had no siblings or aunt or uncle or anybody that trapped, grandpa or anything. So uh, I was the first one in my family to do it. And I, I was just always interested in wildlife. Uh, I had a good friend that lived on a pond. And we were on his pond one time in the fall where we had about two and a half inches of clear ice. Probably shouldn't have been walking on the ice there. But uh, we were out uh, with a hammer and we'd see turtles swimming under the ice and we'd chop through the ice and pick out the turtle and hold it and look at it and then put it back in. And uh, walking around the ice, something shot out from the bank. Uh, we chased it all over the pond on the ice and it, it turned, made its way back to shore and uh, we knew somehow that it was a muskrat. We'd heard somebody talking about muskrats and uh, I saw it and I... I was hooked. I wanted to catch that muskrat. Uh, <laughs> I had some allowance saved up. Uh, the next day, I, my parents took me to Coast to Coast Hardware, and I bought three traps. And I, uh, the trapping season was open, and I came back, and, I, and the following day, I caught my first muskrat. And I've, I've been doing it ever since. So, Conner bears, what, what kind of traps I, I bought were they? two-foot traps and a body grip, Conner okay. bear-style trap, and uh, the Conner bear came through. I, uh, I set my first trap was a foothold in a, a bank run. Uh, second trap was the body grip in a bank run, and my third trap I found another spot for the the uh, a bank run with my foot trap. And on the way back, I walked by the other two traps I'd set, and I already had a muskrat in that body grip. <laughs> so uh, it, it happened in about 30 minutes' time. It's pretty exciting. So what are the uh, you know? Are most trappers these days, um, what are they going after? And it, it varies, I, I suppose. Some of, it, some of it varies based on where you live, what's available. Um, you know, if you're in uh, west-central Minnesota, maybe from Alexandria up to Fergus Falls, that area, there's a good chance you're going to be targeting muskrats. That's our, our waterfowl production area in the state. There's real strong muskrat populations most seasons. Uh, drought this year is impacting that some, but uh, you're probably a, a maybe a muskrat trapper. If you're in maybe southwestern or south-central Minnesota, you're probably doing coyotes and raccoons, you know, in the agricultural areas. Uh, if you're a northern trapper, you might uh, trap a little bit of everything, but beavers are probably pretty big on animal you target, and then you you may go after the fisher or martin or, or bobcat uh, in those areas too. So Fisher and martin seasons are real short, aren't they? It is. Uh, generally runs around six days, six-day gotcha. season. So. Yeah. Yep. Um, they are, are animals that can be impacted by heavy harvest. Um, 
and as a result, they're very strictly managed by the DNR. So uh, if you think about it, the, the huge area they can roam, and you've just got a, a very short window to do it. Uh, you know, it's a testament, those guys that get their limits of those animals each year, uh, it, they're very extremely knowledgeable about those animals. Uh, they've spent many years out in the woods. They've learned where they travel, what's the best attractants and baits for them, and they know those animals' habits very well. So Yeah. So obviously, you know, the big part of trapping is is the furs, uh, b- but what about eating? Uh, and, 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 and uh, yeah, so. Well, um, I, that's one of the questions I get asked quite a bit. Have you ever eaten anything from trapping? And uh, absolutely. I, uh, every year I eat beaver meat. Uh, I, I started many years ago just to try it. I actually had trapping with a friend, and uh, we were up north at his cabin. And after catching a beaver, we, we skinned it out and looked at it. And we thought, you know, we forgot to bring a lot of groceries when we came up here. So maybe out of necessity a little bit, too, we, we decided to cut out some back straps and the, the, the hindquarters of the beaver, uh, put it in zesty Italian dressing overnight in a Ziploc bag. And we we grilled it out on the grill the next day. And it was, it was wonderful. It yeah. was very good. Excellent eating. Um, I've had muskrat. I've tried that. A number of times I know you can go out to eastern United States, Delaware, Maryland, some of those areas. Muskrat's actually on a lot of restaurant menus there. Uh, Louisiana, the same thing. The muskrats are very, you know, very common down there in the the marshes. And uh, they are are, uh, an item you can get in a lot of the restaurants down there. So I out of the two, I, I definitely prefer the beaver meat. That's a lot, lot better tasting as far as I'm concerned. So. Right, right. Um, so, what do you see as the future of trapping? And, and I guess also thinking about, you know, is it? Are you familiar with, you know, sort of the spread geographically outside of Minnesota? Where is trapping? Where are the hotspots? Are there areas of the country where trapping has really gone, gone away? Well, yeah, we've unfortunately we've we've lost some battles nationally. Um, in regards to the rights to trap. Um, That's been taken away in a lot of areas. And I I find it interesting because as soon as trapping is removed uh, from the population in a given area or given state, the complaints on animal problems skyrocket. Um, You know, out east they've had problems where they they, uh, outlawed trapping in a particular state, and, and within a number of years they were having tremendous problems with beaver. Uh, plugging culverts, damaging roads, you know, timber knocking down power lines, things like that. So there became, once they outlawed the trapping, there became a great demand for people with the knowledge to control these animals. And, and a lot of, over the years, a lot of that starts to disappear. You know, uh, trapping's not something you do one or two times and you know thoroughly. It takes many, many years to learn, you know, a lot about the, the avocation there, the sports, so... I uh, I, th- I think I'd mentioned you earlier. J- Jamie Carlson uh, does a lot of work with Modern Carnivore. Has started um, trapping recently. Beaver. He was up in Namaji, yep. and uh, I think basically when he talked to the CEO up there, they said, "How many more can you get?" Because they've got some serious issues up there with. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, thousands. They said, like in this one area, the, the number of, of beavers they're, they're estimating it's 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 crazy. Yeah, the the. If I remember correctly, and I spend a lot of time in the Namaji State Forest, I think it's about 144 square miles. It's a big area, uh, you know, one of the biggest wild areas south of the Duluth in the state of Minnesota. So 
A lot of it's bog country, pretty inaccessible. It's not friendly to walk-in hunters or anything else. And I've, I've parked on roads and walked four or five miles out into bog country to hit some remote beaver ponds, which uh, hold a real good population of beavers, otters, bobcats, things like that, fishers. So I, I get into some back country there, and, and uh, the beaver is just thriving. There's more beaver now in the state of Minnesota than at any time in probably the last 125 years. They're uh, they're just all over. I, every year I see beaver in places that I've never seen them before in my lifetime. So that animal, and, and that has a lot to do with fewer trappers and restrictive, uh, you know, ordinances in, in municipalities against trapping, things like that. They may outlaw trapping, but if they do, it's going to be short order, and they'll be searching for a trapper to help them with uh, with beaver issues. Yeah, yeah. So... Well, Andy, thanks so much for stopping by and being on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much, Mark, for inviting me. And if you're a fisherman also, I think you said fishing. Yep, yeah, you got to try beaver tail for some of your fishing oh, yeah. bait. That's a, yeah. a lot of trappers know about it. Uh, I had coon hounds for years. My dogs lived off of beaver meat. Uh, they ate a ton of beaver. I'd bring them to the vets, and they, they always commented how wonderfully fit my dogs were, how good their teeth were. They were 10, 12-year-old dogs, and they were in great shape. And I think it was due to the beaver meat is a huge part of their diet. So right. that's what I did with a lot of them. But uh, try that beaver tail. It's a great, great fishing bait as well. We'll do that, definitely. <laughs> Thanks well, for having me on, Mark. You bet. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay, we are excited to have... Uh Corey Leffler here from DRC Calls. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so, Corey, tell us a little bit about, well, why are you here at a game fair? And, oh, well, uh, what do you do? I mean, I guess it's a family tradition. I think this is my, boy, 17th, maybe 18th year in a row being here. Okay. Um, so, yeah. It's, Man, uh, that is a long time. Yeah, it's a, it's a family event for us and we've been an exhibitor here i think this is probably our 14th year being an exhibitor um i was first interested in coming down to the game fair to blow in the goose and duck calling contest way back in uh early 2000s and yeah it's been uh well turned it into a business uh, since then and so yeah that's what keeps us coming back that's great so Tell us a little bit about how you got started in hunting. I mean, when you've been coming here that many years, you haven't been making calls that many years. You got family business doing other things? Um, oh, let's see. So getting started in uh, in the outdoors was uh, predominantly whitetail deer hunting, um, some archery hunting back home. My, my, my mom's side of the family, my uncles and grandpa, uh, those guys are um, agriculture uh, farmers back there growing small grains up in the northwest corner of Minnesota. And uh, they have some awesome whitetail hunting property along the uh, the Black River up there. So I, I kind of cut my teeth um, past shooting Canada geese and chasing deer with rifle and a bow. And I just kind of fell in love with uh, putting food on the table even at a young age and just thought it was the coolest thing to go out grocery shopping. You, <laughs> say, you said you, your hunting is, is keeping your freezer in mind, right? Yeah. How did you say it? Yeah, I, I hunt with my freezer in mind. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we do not buy uh, much of, if any, uh, domestic meat from the grocery store whatsoever. And, and uh, vegetables, too, if you guys follow me along. Uh, follow the journey on Instagram. We grow a ginormous garden out there. So we really just try to be um, stewards of the land and kind of live 
live with the land, um, so to say, up there in the tundra of, around Thief River Falls, Minnesota. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we do a ton of canning. We, I do a, a ton of hunting, um, vacuum sealing. We, we stock the freezers pretty good with Dude. all agriculture, um, all of our garden vegetables, and uh, all the game that I'm chasing year-round. So That is great, man. You love it. You, uh, you hunt, and you're up in the same neck of the woods as we're also joined here by Mr. Greg Folly. And uh, Greg's got a, a duck camp uh, up, up, up not too far actually, from there. Actually up by Skyme. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Skyme store. I think everyone yeah, knows yeah, about ab- the Skyme ab- store. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right yeah. on. And the Skyme, <laughs> Skyme Cattle Company. You That's know? right. Roger. Yeah, yeah. You Roger. You know Roger? Oh, yeah. Everyone knows Roger. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> he is the Skyme store. <laughs> he is. You bet. Yeah. Big, that's pretty cool. A uh, big Articat guy, and uh, yeah. you know, coming from Thief yeah. River Falls, yeah. uh, Thief River, Thief River, Thief yeah. River. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about DRC calls. So these are calls that you make, yeah, by hand. Um, yeah, they're they're handcrafted. I turn them on a CNC lathe for the most part, and CNC mill. Uh, but yeah, when I was, um, like I had mentioned, well, back in the early two thousands, when I was traveling around blowing in a bunch of goose calling and and duck mostly goose calling contests i really couldn't find a call on the market that fit my needs and so um i just took it upon myself to design one that had all the features that i wanted to see in a goose call and that was our our kind of our flagship goose call and that was the life sentence that that we um came out with originally and then uh the the product line has branched out from there, and I, I think we offer over a dozen, uh, 12, 15 different models that we have now, um, both goose calls, duck calls, and uh, a cool sandhill crane call as well. Oh, so, really? Oh, Interesting. Yeah. I need one. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> I have seen so many sandhills this year. Ribeye of the great. sky. Absolutely. I love man. seeing them. Yeah, you know, my, yeah. my favorite view of the sandhill crane is, is when I'm looking right down the gun barrel <laughs> in about late September. That is when I really like to see them, but... Um, um, you know, I uh, run around that that area turkey hunting. We we have the only season in Minnesota for sandhill cranes currently up there in the northwest goose zone, and uh, so we've been able to hunt them for a number of years now. But uh, we have a bunch of breeding pairs of sandhill cranes up there, so they're hanging out all spring long. And when I'm running around turkey woods chasing turkeys in the spring. That's what I use for a gobbler locate is my sandhill crane call. And it's just, I, I'm probably one of the only guys in the country running around with a crane call, you know, during turkey season, blowing that thing. Uh, it's effective, so I'm going to keep on doing it. But. So I told you earlier, I, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say I am not the uh, best aficionado of, of, of calls, of, of waterfall calls. And so you talked about how when you were going around doing, doing uh, calling contests that you couldn't find. The, just the right call. Mm-hmm. So, what defines a really good call? Um, I would say there was calls on the market that had um, different aspects that I liked, but not one with the complete package that I liked. And uh, so, when you're when you're up on stage, your nerves are getting to you. You get super nervous up there. And I mean, if you screw up one little tiny note, the judges are going to hear it. So. Um, the, your anxiety and your stress level is right at a max when you're standing on stage blowing that routine for 90 seconds and um, you're the only person around making any noise and you can pretty much hear a pin drop if you were to stop calling. So um, 
uh, the hand placement on the insert is super important with that because if you change the back pressure just a little bit, then it's going to totally change the way that call breaks over and you're going to probably screw up a note and blow and short clock it or stick it or something like that. And there goes your entry fee and, and you're, you're packing up and you're out of there. So, I mean, if you drove 14 hours to get to the contest, there's a lot riding on uh, making very, very good notes, perfect notes for 90 seconds. And uh, you want to be... Um, you know, as, as perfect as possible. And, uh, so yeah, there was some calls out there that my hands were sliding and I couldn't get consistent notes and some, um, had some, some good inserts, but the mouthpiece was sharp. And when I practiced with them a lot, it kind of hurt my mouth and hurt my lips to practice on. So those are a couple of things that I implemented in the design of that first call was an oversized mouthpiece. So you can practice on it for hours and hours. Um, and then a finger groove on the insert, which is going to help out if you are laying in your ground blind and you're fumbling around, you're watching geese and you're fumbling around your lanyard trying to grab your call, your finger just pretty much locks right into that finger groove on the insert. So you don't have any guessing there hmm. when you're on stage blown in a contest, your finger will lock right into that, that insert groove. So it's not sliding around. And then for beginners as well, um, just gives you a really good hand placement or a guide to put that pointer finger and uh, a really good start for where your hands need yeah. to be on the call. Cause that's a, that's a really big thing with a short, read goose call yeah is. that was my biggest problem trying to get the short read down was was just making sure that you had the hand placement right because that back pressure there is not much difference on that so did were you able to um kind of mitigate that real fine tuning on the on the back pressure too Corey, so you don't have to be quite so so technical with it or yeah on that life sentence i built in a lot of back pressure right behind where the the guts sit or that that would be like the tone board and the reed yeah. and the call i built a lot of back pressure right in there and then kind of okay. flared out the insert from there to let some of the volume out because that's kind of a balance that you have to play with that but uh um and then the hand placement thing is really going to help just um consistency with hand placement yeah. and consistency okay. with uh with that back pressure right. that's that's so yeah. important so you got a lot of bands on your lanyard there, and yeah. uh, where uh, where do you usually hunt, and what's your favorite? I usually hunt in uh, North America, and then my favorite <laughs> type of hunting. <laughs> I don't give away Boy, he's not <laughs> getting pretty specific there. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, so I mean, I've got bands from uh, oh heck, from all over the place, really. From um, Alaska was probably one of my my newest bands that's on the lanyard, and then um, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, um, and then a, a whole bunch of different states around. But uh, lots of honkers, okay. uh, lots of chasing honkers, and then uh, I hunt a pretty specific way where. Um, I do a lot of band hunting when I'm hunting because I think banded oh. geese taste better than unbanded <laughs> geese. So, uh, but uh, um, no, we, uh, we, there's we, a problem with that for crying out loud. The ones that got bands on them, they're the ones that got breast muscles like a couple of lumps of steel for <laughs> crying out loud. <laughs> uh, uh, it's uh, you know a lot of it has to do with how much I hunt and. Um, um, and then just kind of the way we set up when we're hunting. So I like to get the birds in super, super close and feet down. And a lot of time when they are just about ready to land and they drop their feet down, 
a little glimmer of aluminum hits the sun, and then I know which one I'm shooting, you know. So I got a pretty trained eye for uh, looking out for bands. <laughs> I don't um, think my eyes are that good anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what's your favorite? So speaking of filling the freezer, mm -hmm. uh, what's your favorite waterfall to eat, and uh, how do you like to prepare it? Um, I guess we couldn't call them waterfowl, but the sandhill crane. Mm, yeah. um, but if we if you want to go into waterfowl. Yeah, let's, let's, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Sandhills, yeah. so I'll set that aside. Um, but um, I would have to say Saskatchewan spring snow geese hmm. uh, on that reverse migration or on that northbound migration when they're heading up. They go through a change that not a lot of people understand, especially if they've never hunted snow geese in the spring in Canada. But um, the snow geese, when they're in the continental United States, say they're hanging out in Arkansas and Louisiana, and they're on a race. And what they're doing, come, you know, say February, they're on a race north, and it basically, they're going to push the snow line as hard as they can to get to the area, the grain fields that are just south of the boreal forest. So in that Prince Albert, Saskatchewan area is kind of the last grain fields that you're going to see. So it's a race to get there. Um, and they get there and I, I, ref I reference it like uh, they, they make it there um, in the shape of a marathon runner. And they're, they're pretty skinny. I mean, they're very physically fit and they've just flown a couple thousand miles to get there. Um, but when they get there, they go from marathon runner to couch potato in a matter of a couple weeks. And they absolutely just chow down when they get there and, and they're reserve nesters. Um, so they, they, they fly the forest after being uh, up in that area for a couple weeks, they, f they fly the boreal forest and then go up to nest well once they get to the tundra there's nothing to eat up there for a long time so they live off all those fat reserves mm -hmm. so if you can shoot them before they fly the forest um there is so much fat available on that bird and i love taking that fat and not just the meat i mean i'll i'll take the meat off of there and the the breast meat's awesome um the, the leg meat and then what I'll do is I'll, uh, they store a lot of their fat kind of down in their pelvic cavity along either side of the large intestine right before it goes out to shoot to the, the body. So there will be like a, um, there'll be a, a baseball size amount of fat down in that pelvic cavity. And I'll take all that fat out of there and all the birds we shoot and I'll put it in a coffee can. Then I'll come back to the lodge or wherever and I'll render that down, and so it's just pure white, and I've just brought home buckets full of snow goose fat home, and mm. people will wonder what the heck I'm yeah. doing, and I'm pulling, yeah. oh. pulling all this fat out of clean yeah. birds, you know? <laughs> oh. like, are you crazy? And I'm like, you just wait, uh, just, right. you just wait, oh. and then we'll use that um, the same as you would lard or butter or olive oil or do you vegetable like, oil. Do you, do you ever do like popcorn or anything like that? Just yeah. in it? Yeah, oh, yeah. just use I mean, it for everything. For everything, yeah, everything. it's, it's yeah. oil. I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. oil, it's cooking oil. So frying potatoes in it, and eggs and adding it to um it's got a really really high flash point so i mean mm, if you want to have nice. some yeah. like the best walleye the best crappie mm. uh something like that pan fry that stuff super super hot um frying you know venison steak in there venison backstrap fried um it just lightly seasoned with some salt and then fry that in uh, um in that snow goose fat super hot rare um you know i like to go blue rare in the middle of a of a backstrap but crispy outside 
perfect inside. Flip that. Um, man, I'm getting hungry. Are we I know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we get- <laughs> I know. I know. Absolutely. I think I know what I'm going to do next yeah. spring. <laughs> you know, the only fat I like better than, than snow goose fat? White front. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's some, that's some really good stuff, yeah. too. Yeah. You, you can't get them in those kind of numbers in the spring, no, though. That's so true. when you go up in the springtime yeah. in Saskatchewan, you can't get 20 get of them a day, so, right. you know, snow geese. So, yeah. um, so you can really rake it in. Make hay when the sun shines <laughs> up there. Yeah. Uh, well, Corey, I know we could talk wild game eating uh, for two hours, but appreciate you stopping by. Heck and, yeah, this is uh, a blast. Absolutely, man. So, Corey, what's the, uh, what's the website for, for your call company? Uh, you guys can find me at drccalls.com, and we've got a free, full, short-read goose calling instructional right on the homepage for awesome. you. Type in your, web, uh, type in your email address, and uh, it'll, it'll show up there. And we produced that a couple years ago. And so if you're looking to get started on a short-read goose call, that'd be a great start. It's free. So. Perfect. That's great. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a great show. We are here at Game Fair 2021. Yep. Uh, apparently America's original something. Uh, original Game Fair. Uh, since 1982, this uh, event has been going on. It is huge. It's in Anoka, Minnesota. And I'm joined by Kang Yang. How are you doing, Kang? Good. How are you, Mark? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, Isn't man. This is great. <laughs> so you're right across the way yeah. uh, in the Delta booth, Delta Waterfall. Yep. So tell me a little bit about why Why are you at Game Fair? Um, so I am Game Fair to help Delta Waterfall with just their um, getting new memberships, running, helping them with their raffle. Um, I've been a part of their organization, um, just helping their chapters and the regional director for the last two years now okay. two, three, three years now um it was the first organization that stood out to me when i started duck hunting so what stood out for you maybe explain for people who aren't familiar with delta yeah. waterfall what is what is the mission delta waterfall or, or what g- generally drew you to it yeah so delta waterfall they call themselves the duck hunters organization okay uh, what they do is they make ducks and by making ducks they do that by predator management and also uh, uh, research and science behind it okay um, looking at brood counts you know looking at surveys stuff like that headquartered out of Bismarck North Dakota correct yeah okay but a very a very vibrant uh, chapter here in Minnesota or yeah a bunch very of vibrant chapter um, it just really stood out to me um, the, the people behind it was what you know I think through any organization I tend to stick more to the people behind the organizations, yeah. and they really stood out. Just the people when I started, when I joined their, you know, their banquets and their committee. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Everybody I know within the organization are, are, is top. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's good, and yep. I, I'm glad that you're over there helping them. So, um, how about you? Like, uh, what personally brought you into Delta? What What do you do with with hunting? Um, so I am new to hunt. I wasn't anti-hunter right and you're uh, an anti-hunter <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was an anti-hunter and then also an adult onset hunter right and uh what brought me into delta was just you know their their commitment towards making ducks um i don't know if that <laughs> answers your question yeah no totally <laughs> well i mean let me ask you this so so how does someone how does someone go from being an anti-hunter to being a hunter what 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 switched for you? What changed? Yeah, so what switched was uh, my dog, so Kaya. She was what helped me change. 
Um, she's she basically I saw it as she, she was bred to hunt and uh, you know to give her the best and the most out of her out of her life is take her hunting. So that's what really started it, and that's transitioned now to mentoring because. When I started hunting, you know, thankful I'm really thankful for my dad for showing me how to pheasant hunt, learning how to pheasant hunt. I mean, everything I learned, no, from pheasant hunting is from him. But when I started duck hunting, there was really no one out there. It was hard to find a mentor, let's just yeah. say that. You know, duck hunters like to be secretive of their spots. Do their own thing. Do their own thing, you yeah. know, which is, which is fine. But uh, that's what's led to, you know, what me now wanting to do uh, hunting recruitment, right? At the time when I started, a lot of organizations were looking at recruitment. So, like, PF, uh, Delta, Forever. yep, Pheasants Forever, DU, Delta. They were all had this initiative to start hunting recruitment. Yeah. And so that kind of, you know, um, helped me as well. So you are known as Minnesota Hunter on social media, right? Yes, Minnesota Hunter. That's right. That is you. Yeah. And I, 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 word on the street is that you, you've got a big TikTok following. That that is uh, a social media <laughs> not of big, choice. Not, not big, but I mean, I think, uh, I think I like my con- I think my content is really geared towards those people where they're trying to start out duck hunting or just hunting in general. And there's not a lot of content where they just tell them the specifics. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. The, the real stuff that they really need to learn out there. Well, and, and I loved, I saw the other day, you did a video. Uh, I think you did it on TikTok, but then you probably reposted it to Instagram. We, yeah. we haven't been very active with TikTok on, on Modern Carnivore, <laughs> but I think we'll change that here in the future. Yeah. But um, you did uh, sort of a how-to, a quick how-to video yeah. on placing these silhouettes, yeah. these, these, these goose silhouettes, right? Yep, exactly. So, that, like, like, what do you think... Um, what kind of reaction did you get to that? And is that type of, you know, really, is that type of content, you think, helpful to, to new hunters? Yeah, I think it's really helpful to new hunters. Um, a lot of the messages that on that video, a lot of them were like, this is great. This is so helpful. I'm new to hunting or I'm new to the field hunting. And then there was, you know, the veteran hunters and they're like, well, you're putting your decoys too close together. <laughs> well, you're putting your decoys too far from each other. I'm always like, have the experts always have, weighing well, in. <laughs> yeah, you know, like everybody has their opinion, yeah, and which yeah. is fine. It's just my, uh, I like to put it out there how I learned it and how I do it. So, But you had a goose actually, yeah, actually fly <laughs> in yeah. at the end of the setup, which I know. proves that it worked, right? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Because you was, just set that up like in a, it looked like an industrial park area, like yeah. back behind your office or something, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, okay, oh, funny. That's great. Yeah. So, I mean, you didn't you didn't hunt at all when you were a kid, even though your dad no. hunted, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, like, what, what age did you decide, hey, you know what? What te- when did Kaya come along? And, and so you got mm-hmm. your dog as yeah. a hunting dog without in, in, the intention of hunting. Correct. I So my dad has been hunting forever, um, like you said. Uh, but he got Kaya to breed, basically, and um, keep a puppy but sell her. And I was like, well, let me go look at this dog. Because then I liked dogs, right? And then so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to keep her if you're not going to, you know, yeah. do anything with her. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it started. And you saw her... With her tendency towards uh, towards birds and thought, yeah. well, maybe I'll try this out. Yep, exactly. Cool. Yeah. How about food? Food, I think, is an important thing for you too, right? Yeah, food is very important. Um, I wasn't really of a big uh, game eater back then, you know. But now, like you know, it's um, you have to eat it just because you know, you know it's like respect. Yeah. Really, you know, you can't just chase it and not eat it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, food, and then in that aspect, it's brought me closer to my culture and my. 
um, the Hmong community as well. The Hmong community. So yeah. yeah. So so you're part of the Hmong community here yeah. in in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Of which hunting is a big part of the community, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Very how about big. how about young people? Are they are they sticking with it or no? Not 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 at that I've seen. Okay. Really, um, people more my age, like '90s babies, they're still into it, but like the 2000 kids yeah. I, don't, I don't see that many out there yet i don't know why but yeah yeah okay well yeah have to get more people out there yeah as as you can. exactly Keep up the that's good what work. i know <laughs> <laughs> well thanks up for stopping by yeah, uh, thanks we're for here in the, me, yeah we're here in the backcountry hunters and anglers booth at game fair and uh we'll stop over see seeing the delta waterfall booth i think we're going to get you a membership to bha right now <laughs> and then i think maybe we'll go get matt get a membership at delta yeah so. <laughs> perfect thank you mark thanks king thanks for listening to the modern carnivore podcast You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.